another pot of coffee is brewing. My fifth cup is almost finished. I should probably be drinking a bit more water. So that means it's time for Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and very honest caffeine fiend. This week is a cause for celebration. No, I have not suddenly found a partner who is going to whisk me away on a private jet for a quarantine-breaching Valentine's vacation, but I am marking getting another year older this week. And as part of that celebration, I decided to ask you, my listeners, what you wanted to hear. And that's why there were no clues for you to guess the film, because I'm going to be looking at the, if your votes are anything to go by, very popular Muriel's Wedding. Also this week, I'm going to be talking about a book you may have heard me mention before, The Invisible Library by Genevieve Cogman, as well as what's going to be on UK streaming services for the next week. There's a bit coming that you may well be interested in. And of course, it wouldn't be a week in the coffee household if I didn't talk about what's been happening in my mental health world. But before all of that, it's time for a short and sweet instalment of My Dreams Are Fucking Weird. Yes, it's back. I have no idea how long this is going to go on for. This one was weird, if only because it includes a few things that actually frustrate me in the real world. Essentially, it appears that from somewhere, someone in my family, probably me, because I'm likely the only one who would be stupid enough to suggest anything that's this wrong, came into a lot of money. Perhaps my podcast became a moneymaker. Uh-huh. Or maybe I actually put some effort in and finally finished a novel. Yeah, right. But anyway, now we'll go with I won the lottery. Though, to be honest, I only pick numbers once in a blue moon, so chance would be a fine thing. Anyhow, whatever the reason, my entire family... That's me, my mum, my sister and her family, plus her mother-in-law, my brother and his partner are all living together in one massive house. And by massive, I mean I have a suite of rooms with a small library come recording area, a private bathroom and a dressing room. So it is pretty big. Anyway, I wake up one morning in this dream house, though why I'd be sharing my dream house with all these people, I have no idea. And when I get to my bathroom, I discover that someone has already been in there. How do I know? Well, whoever it is has opened all of the toilet rolls up and used bits of every single one of them so they're at different stages of use. I know, I really do know this sounds completely weird and it doesn't sound like much to most people. However, to me, it's a huge issue. And I mean legitimately a huge issue. It's one of the things that has always set me off. It's frustrating and actually makes me feel a little bit itchy. Anyway, my dream simply stops just as I'm telling my mum, as though I'm a child reporting something to her parents, that something has to be done about this phantom toilet paper user. Oh, and everyone else in the household is staring at me as though I have completely lost the plot. So that's it. That's my dream. I woke up feeling really antsy, itchy and fractious, so it wasn't exactly a great start to Saturday morning. Sure, the house was lovely, the kitchen was stunning, as was the deep-sided clawfoot tub in my personal bathroom, 
and the beautiful shelves lined with stunning books, every single book I could possibly imagine in my personal library. However, none of that could take away from the fact that someone was doing something that actually makes me shake with, I'm not sure if it's anxiety, rage, frustration or what, but it does. So now you've heard some of my unusual anxiety causes, thanks to that dream, let's get on with the main event, the film. As I've already said, this week, by popular vote, I am talking about 1994's Muriel's Wedding, which stars Tony Collette and Rachel Griffiths in what turned out to be their breakout roles. The funny thing about Muriel's Wedding is that the costumes, the style, and the fact that many of the characters seem to be smoking so much and so casually is something that is far more commonly associated with American films made the previous decade. 22-year-old Muriel Heslop is obsessed with only two things, fitting in with the popular girls and getting married. When we first meet her, she's just caught the bouquet at the wedding of one of her school bullies, Tanya, and you can't help but wonder why she's trying to be friends with Tanya, Cheryl, Janine and Nicole, because they're horrid. While at the wedding, she sees Tanya's new husband having sex with Nicole, one of the bridesmaids, in the laundry room. She doesn't mention it at all to anybody, I don't know if I'd say that's a friend thing to do, or what. Anyway, before the wedding is over, Muriel has been escorted away by the police because it turns out she stole the dress she's wearing. Muriel's home life isn't exactly ideal. Her dad, Bill, is a wannabe politician who has a place on the local town council. He's very proud of this one accomplishment, but wants more and makes no bones about the fact that everything to do with his home life, from his children to his wife... Their house and his situation in it is a disappointment. He yells abuse at his children, is vile to his wife Betty, who often seems to be incredibly out of it, and personally I think she's got depression of some kind, and doesn't care who knows that he has nothing good to say about them, even yelling at them when he takes the family out to dinner to impress some potential town investors. After Muriel has a meal with her bullies, during which time they tell her that A, that they're going on holiday without her, and B, she is a no one and she needs to mix with her own kind rather than with them because they're embarrassed to say that they know her. Muriel's on a mission. She needs to prove to them and everybody else that she's not a no one. But even with the missile up her sleeve of Nicole having sex with Tanya's husband at their wedding, she says nothing. Apart from, I'm not a no one, and that is heartbreaking. For anybody who's got serious, serious confidence issues, I am someone who suffers from really bad issues with their confidence, though I may not sound like I do. It is heartbreaking to feel that you're insignificant. And for somebody to tell you that they believe you're insignificant just further compounds that in your own mind. Anyway, her good intentions don't last very long. Muriel is offered a job by her dad's friend, For that, read Very Discreet Mistress, Deirdre Chambers, and Bill instructs his wife to write Muriel a blank cheque so that she can start selling makeup on Deirdre Chambers. I think it's it's kind of like a pyramid scheme, but also Mary Kay or Avon, I suppose, is the closest you'd get to it. With blank cheque in hand, Muriel essentially spends the family's entire savings to go on holiday to Hibiscus Island. 
the holiday that Tanya and her friends were going on, and Muriel wasn't invited to. Muriel is completely without shame by this point, even though the other girls reject her and make it clear that they know she's on the island because they're already there, she continues blindly and eventually meets up with an ex-school acquaintance, Rhonda, played by Rachel Griffiths. Rhonda is a definite party girl full of confidence and takes a great deal of pleasure in telling Tanya that Nicole was shagging Chuck. What a name. Seriously. On their wedding day. When Muriel returns home, she's confronted by her mum who asks her about the money, saying, all of our savings have gone, your dad is furious. She's sure that it's just a mistake and that the bank has made this error. Nothing to do with Muriel. However, Muriel knows differently. As we know, Muriel spent the money. She selfishly took it and at this point, I'm not sure if she took it purely because she wanted to fit in or because she was absolutely sick of the way her dad talked about her, calling her a failure constantly. But before anything can happen, Muriel gets back in the taxi she came home in and does a runner, thus solidifying her guilt. It seems that when we next see Muriel, we've skipped forward a little bit. She's working in a video store, obsessively watching Charles and Diana's wedding on repeat, and using her job as an excuse and a way to pick up men. She's living with Rhonda, who's just as man-mad, and a fun flatmate, and she's not bothered at all to get in touch with her family. Things change, though, when one night after Rhonda's been having some fun with two very well-built American soldiers on leave, and Muriel's been on a date with a really sweet video store customer called Bryce, Rhonda collapses and is unable to move her legs. It turns out that Rhonda has a tumour and will need surgery. While at the hospital, Muriel's feeling a little bit of guilt and quite lost and calls her home. Betty tells her daughter that Bill is in the city and he's under investigation for taking bribes and Muriel needs to go and see him. Muriel's obviously not very happy about that news and I don't think anybody would be who wants to see their parents when there's no one else to act as a buffer. While walking home with Rhonda in the hospital, Muriel sees a wedding dress shop And it's like that shop is her saviour. She goes in, tries on a dress and tells a sob story about how her mum is in the hospital and won't ever get the chance to see the dress. Thus starts Muriel's trip all over the city to try on wedding gowns. Every time her story is a tiny bit different but every single time she gets more photos to add to an album she just can't stop looking at. Rhonda's now at home She's in a wheelchair and very dependent on Muriel and the therapy she's getting to help her get back on her feet. While she's searching through Muriel's room for some cigarettes, she finds Muriel's wedding album and starts to look through it, horrified, believing that Muriel is actually marrying the boyfriend she told Rhonda about, who was abusive, an ex-cop with a gun who threatened to kill her. And we all know he does not exist. Muriel and Rhonda fight for the first time in their friendship and Muriel's insecurities all come out. Who could ever love her? Who will ever marry Muriel Heslop from Pauper Spit? For all that her time in Sydney has been good for parts of her, her hatred for herself, probably partially brought on by her dad, is still there. In desperation, while she's searching through the paper for another wedding dress shop, it's become like a drug she cannot kick, She sees an ad asking for a woman with Australian citizenship. She goes to meet David Van Arkel, a talented South African swimmer with a visa issue, and his trainer. 
His trainer has figured out that marrying an Australian will ensure that his client can stay in the country. In exchange for $20,000, Muriel will marry David and he will get to stay in Australia and represent them at the Olympics. Of course, Muriel agrees all too quickly, though David's face is an absolute picture and you can see that he's horrified and he goes through a list of all the women that they've already seen and he's turned down and he's like I'll take her anything would be better. The wedding is a massive affair because it's been Muriel's dream from the word go. I mean the film's named Muriel's wedding but it's empty her dad is acting as though he's the proudest man on the planet that his daughter is marrying into money and talent. Rhonda is also at the wedding, but she refused to participate even when Muriel asked her to be a bridesmaid. She knows the whole thing is a farce and she's not going to hold back in telling the truth. You're right. You are a new person and you stink. Mariel Van Arkel stinks and she's not half the person Muriel Heslop was. You can tell she's not going to take this line down she's furious that her friend lied to her and now that Muriel's married Rhonda is going to have to move back to live with her mother in pauper spit because she can't cope on her own Betty arrives at the wedding late and is completely ignored by Muriel and everyone else as though she's not there at all I'm not sure if it's intentional or not but it feels as though Muriel and her dad have both moved into new lives and Betty is not part of them. I love Betty. To be honest, she is the one character that I really hurt for and I feel so much pain when she's overlooked by her daughter and completely discarded by her husband. After the wedding, it's incredibly clear that David only married her because he had no choice. In fact, he tells her that he just wants to win and doesn't understand why Muriel would want to marry someone she doesn't know. At this point, I personally feel we see elements of Bill Heslop in Muriel. She married David because she wanted to win. She got one over on the bullies at Porpoise Spit who called her and asked her if they could be part of her big celebrity wedding. And she's also got one over on her dad who thought she would come to nothing. Not that she's actually come to anything, she married somebody who doesn't love her. While Muriel is spending all her time living in the lap of luxury, Rhonda has moved back to Porpoise Spit and Betty is sinking further into depression. After Betty is arrested for shoplifting a pair of sandals that she absentmindedly put on when her shoes got uncomfortable while she was doing the family shop, and then she just forgot to pay for them, Bill tells her that the only reason he never made it into government was because of her and their children, that they are an embarrassment and it's all her fault. He then tells her that he's leaving her for Deirdre Chambers and starts to pack his suitcases before he leaves in fury. He slams the door of that car as though it's a final slam on the door of his previous life. Muriel is sitting in David's apartment watching the wedding again when her sister Joni calls and tells her that their mum's died. When Muriel gets back to Porpoise Spit, it turns out that not only has Bill covered everything up with the public, but he also got rid of the evidence that proves that Betty actually killed herself. She took a bottle of pills. This, for me, is so poignant. She was so beaten down, degraded and belittled by her entire family constantly. And she was clearly in so much pain and there was no one to listen to her. Bill acts the grieving widow at the funeral, 
but all he's trying to do is show the press that he still has the respect of officials who are in power. When messages of condolence are read out from people I'm assuming here were important at the time, I'm not Australian so please don't come for me. He is acting smug and satisfied rather than someone who's really sad that he lost the woman he had five children with. After the funeral, David and Muriel sleep together and then Muriel realises that this is not what she wants at all. So she asks him for a divorce. David at this point is reluctant. He acknowledges that they have no feelings for each other but he thinks that she would be fun. And I don't think Personally, I don't think that's what I'd want to hear if I was married to somebody. Oh, I know I don't love you, but I think it could be fun anyway. Oh, great. Thanks. I've tied myself to you for the rest of my life. She heads home and tells her dad how it's going to be. She's not going to be staying to take on the mantle that her mother has left empty. It's his responsibility. They are his children. And she offers him the rest of the money she actually was given for agreeing to marry David, telling him she'll pay back the rest when she gets back to Sydney and gets another job. She then goes to get Rhonda, her one true friend through all of this, and someone she treated as though they were disposable. Rhonda is currently suffering through a visit from Tanya and her acolytes, while her mother drives her nuts with coddling. When Muriel says she's going back to Sydney and wants Rhonda to go with her, Rhonda makes her wait for a while, and rightly so, but can't actually wait to get away from her mum and the coddling and the smothering that's going on. Living in pauper spit is like living in a smothering goldfish bowl. The last we see of Rhonda and Muriel is them waving goodbye to pauper spit and hello to their old new lives. Well, there's the summary of the film and a few of my views. I can't help but think this is definitely not a rom-com because what romance is in it is actually not really romance at all. And the funny thing is, apparently a few years ago, a theatre in Australia did a stage version of Muriel's Wedding and they changed the ending completely. Instead of having Rhonda and Muriel going off to find their new lives together as friends, which is what it, what it was all about in my view... They had Bryce, the relatively insignificant character. And the only reason I think you remember him is because the sex scene was hilarious because he is not unzipping her but the beanbag that they were sitting on. And also, obviously, it was the same night that Rhonda collapsed. He comes back into the picture and sweeps them both off back to Sydney on his bike. For me, that totally eliminates the purpose of the story. Muriel was selfish. She was, in many ways, a female version of her dad. She didn't think of anybody else. Granted, in the end, she made the right decision. She told her husband of however many minutes that she didn't want a shallow, empty marriage and they were better off separating and going their own way. But she still lied to everybody she stole her entire family savings and left them in poverty however that doesn't give bill the justification to constantly yell at his children and accuse them of being the only reason why he never succeeded in his political aspirations 
I think the acting in this was really good and it did for me feel like it was an 80s film rather than something made in the early 90s but then I've always noticed this about things that come from Australia they seem to be more nostalgic in many ways than the films that are being made today for us for example look at I think one of the best examples has to be Strictly Ballroom which was which came out at a a similar time and is also very nostalgic that particular film harks back quite well to Dirty Dancing though obviously isn't going all the way back to the 1950s overall I really do enjoy this film. It's one of those films that has some very serious undertones to it with theft, cancer, death, suicide, extramarital affairs, marrying for a green card, though obviously I don't know. Are your cards green in Australia? I don't know. But it has all of those serious undertones with the friendship, the funny, but I don't think it's actually meant to be a comedy so much as it is a semi-comedy tragedy drama but it's all about the friendship at the end of it ultimately the film is about Rhonda and Muriel not Rhonda and any one of her (laughs) numerous one night stands oh those two soldiers (laughs) or and it's not about Muriel and David or Muriel and Bryce it's about Muriel and Rhonda and about them both growing and changing. Muriel is the one who needs to change the most. And at the end, she has acknowledged that it isn't all about her. She is a selfish, self-centered character at the very beginning. And I think part of that was to do with the fact that if she didn't think she was wonderful, no one else was going to because her father certainly didn't. I wish he'd got his comeuppance far more than just his mistress telling him he was not what she wanted now he had children to look after but his children weren't exactly school age any longer they were all just lounging about and if he's blaming his wife for all of that surely he's got to take some of the responsibility so would I recommend it yes it's on Amazon Prime in the UK right now it might be on in the US I don't know but go and check it out if it is heartily recommend two thumbs up I really enjoyed it even though I didn't like the main character for most of the film now that we've looked at the film I focused most of my attention on over last weekend I'm going to start looking at what's coming to the streaming platforms in the UK over the next week Netflix is to be honest not looking too bad especially if you're a fan of Lara Jean and want to find out what happens next yes on the 12th of February so tomorrow if you're listening to this on Thursday we've got to all the boys always and forever the final installment in the trilogy based on the books by Jenny Han if you're a fan of true crime then this one not Lara Jean is for you as on the 13th we've got White House Farm the true story behind the 1985 Essex murders. On the 15th of February, we've got two 1990s comedies coming your way, Bird on a Wire with Goldie Hawn and Mel Gibson, and possibly the worst film ever starring Sylvester Stallone. Stop or my mum will shoot. On the 17th, we have AI, Artificial Intelligence, with Jude Law and Hayley Joel Osment. 
a British drama called Behind Her Eyes, and Shark Horror The Meg. And if you want to hear a good episode on that one, then head over to listen to Paul and Griff as they have previously tackled the Jason Statham hit. On Amazon, the list is much smaller, but as we all know, Amazon is really good at just uploading stuff to their catalogue and giving you the fun of finding it. However, they have been a little more transparent this month with a couple of releases, including The Map of Tiny Perfect Things, which is a fantasy romance that will be on the platform from the 12th of February, as will 2020's I Still Believe, which stars country singer Shania Twain, KJ Apper from Riverdale, and Tomorrowland's Britt Robertson. I haven't actually looked to see what this is about, but I think it's going to be something along the lines of a Nicholas Sparks novel. On Thursday the 18th of February, Bad Boys, the original, will be making its move from Netflix across to Prime. Disney Plus is still preparing for the launch of Disney Plus Star. If you've seen the images, you know a lot of the stuff that is going to be coming to the UK from the 23rd of February. Is anyone else getting as excited about this new retro content as me? Also, did anyone see the promo of the Falcon and the Winter Soldier and get a 90s European nightclub vibe? Because I know I did. Anyway, on Disney Plus this week, we have a few animated series for younger audiences coming on the 12th, as well as season two of Inside Pixar and a series called National Geographic's The Science of Stupid. This would have actually suited me today. I wonder if I could audition for next season. I was setting up my brand new mouse because my other one broke yesterday and got frustrated because it wasn't working. I then took it apart and realised that I'd put the batteries in the wrong way round. Looking for something to listen to after you've finished listening to the latest episode of Not Before Coffee? Why not try Bedknobs and Broom Flicks? It's hosted by Linda and Jane and in each episode they discuss witches and witchcraft in the entertainment world. So movies, books and TV. Hi, I'm Linda. And I'm Jane. And we have a brand new podcast called Bedknobs and Broom Flicks, where we talk about witches of the entertainment world. From the horror movies Warlocks, Suspiria, The Witch, and The Blair Witch Project. To the more comedic or whimsical, such as Harry Potter, Hocus Pocus, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and The Blair Witch Project. No movie, TV show, or book is off limits. All witches, man witches, sorry warlocks, we're not calling you that, witches brews, witches of history, familiars, and witch-like activity will be discussed as we laugh and have fun talking about the wonderful world of witches. So join us every other week for some fun witchy talk. All witches welcome. Go ahead and head over there after you've listened to the rest of this episode. Okay, now we're on to books. I'm ashamed to admit that this book is one that was on my to-be-read pile for probably five, if not six years. But when I started reading again, when I started to set my targets, I told myself that I was going to read at least five new authors and this one happened to be actually quite high up on the list. Of course, when I purchased the book, it was brand new and there weren't any other books in the series. Now there are six, and I believe a seventh will come out this coming year. Anyway, I decided to just try my hand at something different, and that's why I picked up The Invisible Library by Genevieve Cogman. I've got the other, I've got two of the other six 
already on my Kindle waiting to go, but they are kind of slotted in between other books that I'm reading. This series is 100% fantasy, combined with a little bit of steampunk, a little bit of The Librarians, you know, the TV show with Christian Kane. It also has a few elements that reminded me of Mortal Engines, the book, not the film. When I started reading this a good few years too late, the first few chapters actually made me think of an episode of Castle, you know the one, where they're investigating a murder that takes place in the New York steampunk community. If this community really exists, I wouldn't mind visiting though, but I don't think I want a gruesome murder. The thing that really sets this book apart from others for me is that it uses a device I've rarely read in books that works, and that is different versions of reality. I have actually read several books that use alternate realities and timelines, and to be completely honest, I found them confusing. I'm not sure why. I think it was the fact that I kept on looking at it and going, well, which timeline did that happen in and how did that happen and where did they go? And the confusion just pulled me out of the story more and more. However, though there is mention of different realities and we know that they are a thing that these librarians have access to, this book is based only in one alternate reality with one timeline. I know that other realities are encountered in other books in the series, because otherwise, why would there be a point? Each of these realities is given a number and a designation depending on what criteria it falls under, whether it has magic, steam power, electronics. There are many different criteria across many different worlds. However, the one we're in at this moment in time in this one book is steam with a little bit of the supernatural and lots of chaos. When we first encounter our lead protagonist, Irene, she's undercover as a cleaner at a school for magical students. No, it's not Hogwarts. She's a spy for the library, a secret organisation that seems to be outside of any reality, and her job is to steal special books that are kept in the library archives. The library is possessive, and anyone who works for it is gifted with immortality, but it comes with a price. They have markings on their back can cause pain. Something that we're made aware of when a Fae ambassador tries to tempt Irene to his side with gentle seduction when she's trying to locate a different book that's capable of causing incredible chaos. A book that went missing after its owner was brutally murdered. Unlike some other initiates who gave their lives to the library, Irene was actually born to two librarians and she cut her teeth on the less dangerous missions that her parents went on. Kai, her assistant, is clearly hiding something. While he's on his first mission outside the library with Irene, he gives away small details that show he's not been 100% honest about his lack of ties with the outside world. One thing that the librarians have in common is that they have no commitments, no ties, no children, no family, no friends. They are completely isolated. And in fact, they're kind of like men in black. They don't exist. From things that are hinted out throughout the book, the library recruits people without family or outside loyalties. During a conversation that Kai has with another character, he mentions a younger brother and family loyalty. He's actually horrified that another character, the enigmatic Earl of Leeds, aka Vale, 
states that he left his family in order to pursue his own interests, something that is not done when you have family ties. Vale is somewhat reminiscent, for me anyway, the minute I met him and they started talking about him in the book, all I could think was, ooh, he's Sherlock Holmes. He's hyper-observant, interested in investigation, overjoyed at the prospect of battle, whether it's a battle of wits or physical pursuit, and he is intrigued by the idea of the unknown. He also has a very small amount of mystical power that he inherited from his family, and he's able to sense when someone will be important to his life, but he has no idea whether they have good or evil intent. It's clear that Irene feels just a little bit out of her depth, unsurprising really, and unsure of who to trust, though she does trust Kai, her apprentice, and her companion. At one point, he offers himself to her as easily as he would offer her a cup of tea. However, there are so many questions that Irene still has about him at the same time. She still trusted him. Whoever he was, whatever he was, he was sincere and he was on her side. The book is filled with such amazingly interesting characters. We have Bradamant, Capelia, the fantastically animated elder Miss Olga Retrograde, and the Sherlock Holmes dupe, Peregrine Vale. For all that Irene and Kai are meant to hide who they are, they don't seem to be really good at it. In fact, they are about as obvious as James Bond. I am Bond, James Bond, I work for MI6. She is, I am Irene, I'm a librarian. They are easily discovered by Miss Retrograde and Vale. There are also a lot of red herrings in this book. Is Bradamant merely horrible or is she the bad guy? What about Aubrey, the librarian who was based in the British Museum? Silver, the Fay ambassador, is he bad or misguided? Belfagor, we know that the mysterious cat burglar is anything but good. But who is he? Is he a he? Is he a she? And of course, the dangerous ex-librarian who has somehow managed to stay alive outside the library for over 500 years. Remember what I said about loyalty? The library offers you immortality for loyalty. Alberic is no longer loyal to the library, yet he is still alive after 500 years. Irene is given a very public warning about him when she's going through a market, but she doesn't know who Alberic is. In the midst of chaos, darkness and danger, when their very lives are at risk, Kai's secret is revealed. And though, I have to be honest, I was anticipating something completely unexpected and unusual, and definitely magical, I did not actually expect what happened. He's a dragon. Oh, oops. Read the book, you'll see what I mean, it's, it's not quite that straightforward. The library is a place for those who love books. I live and breathe them. I spent so much time in a library as a child and this library is no different. It is a place for those who love books, who want to dedicate their lives to the preservation of every single tome there is. The idea of this library, the invisible library, is fascinating to me because as a child I wanted nothing more than to be a librarian. And that is being completely sincere. I wanted to be a writer and a librarian and to me they were both one in the same, they were both absorbed in books. But my grades weren't good enough to get into the course I needed at university and then I realised that as much as I really wanted this to be my future, unless I hold away in the academic world of university libraries, the future was not mine. 
As much as I hate to admit it, or actually acknowledge it, seriously, it's ridiculous, the library as it was is far too quickly dying out in the UK. And this is a plea, please, seriously, visit your local libraries when they're open. Reduced funding has affected village libraries to the point where they're closing down, and libraries in cities and larger towns are having to become far more like community centres than the home of much-beloved books in order to survive. It makes me sad, but that is the reality as it is, and it's probably going to get worse. However, read this book, read the sequels. They are on my to-be-read pile as I speak, and I will probably pick up another one soon because thinking about this one has made me realise it's been too long and I really would like to find out what happens in The Masked City. get to the big bit the mental health update this week has been shit (laughs) okay there's no other way to put it I I don't know if I've mentioned previously but I suffer quite badly from panic attacks and they always happen at night a long time ago a long time probably a few years ago my doctor prescribed me bisoprolol in order to aid in reducing the palpitations that I get whenever I have a panic attack uh, because it's as though my heart is going to explode out of my chest I can't breathe properly I get pain in my sides I get headaches I get throbbing veins in my pressure points on the side of my head and I cannot sleep and just last week I had a wonderful series of cyclical attacks and for anybody who suffers from panic attacks they'll know that having one of them is bad enough but when one panic attack leads to five further panic attacks it is the worst I couldn't sleep I think I ended up getting maybe an hour's sleep on a work night there was no reason for these panic attacks nothing was going wrong I'd uploaded a good episode for the podcast. I had eaten a good and healthy meal, surprisingly. I had ordered a load of stuff that I needed for something. I'd got some new stationery arriving, which always makes me feel really happy. I'd cleaned up my flat. I'd got rid of a load of rubbish that I didn't need anymore. Yet for some reason, something was in my head that didn't want to let go. And on that particular occasion, it turned into a series of panic attacks. My psychiatrist has said that, unfortunately, there is no reason behind them. And they're never, I don't know if there actually is a reason behind them. Some people will have them because something has made them feel anxious. But when you're not feeling anxious, do you still get them? Because I know I do. And talking of anxiety... Is it just me or does the weirdest and stupidest thing cause you to feel really anxious? This morning we had a text message from my manager. The entire department had a text message saying, can you all be ready for a meeting at 11.45? There was no explanation of what it was about. There was no it's all going to be okay, it was just be ready for a meeting at 11.45. 
So I then had an hour and five minutes during which time every thought under the sun was in my head, made me feel sick. I actually ended up with pain all down one side of my body because I got really tense and really stressed. I could have probably contacted my manager and said, hey, is everything okay? Have I done something wrong? Because that's always my first thought. Even though I haven't done anything that could be considered wrong, my first thought is, have I done something wrong? I got anxious. I started to feel pain. I started to feel tired. I started to feel sick. And it could have all been eliminated with one simple message to my manager. But all I could think was, I don't want to contact her just in case I've done something wrong. And it is because I've done something wrong. I feel guilt whenever I get this kind of message, whether I'm at fault of something or not. So that was my week of mental health stress. It was anxiety attacks, followed by stress attacks, followed by lack of sleep. So all in all, it was wonderful. With any luck, this next week will be much better. It should be. I've got Wednesday through Friday off. So that's it. I hope you enjoyed my birthday week episode. (laughs) So jolly. I release a new episode every week. So if you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends or family and post a review on one of the many podcatchers out there like iTunes or Podchaser. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs or on Instagram at Ray's Reading Room. Well, I need another cup of coffee as I definitely have not had enough today. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. And until next time, this is me saying farewell.